Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are rumors that a foldable iPad could be coming as soon as 2024, but would the price of such a device be cost prohibitive? The venture capital scene got substantially worse for black founders in 2022. Their companies only received about 1% of the $215.9 billion raised last year, down from 1.3% in 2021. TikTok employees pick favorites with the heat budding, putting their thumbs on the scale for content they want to go viral. Just another reason that creators need to control the distribution of their content and have a relationship with their biggest fans outside of social media platforms. we got all this and more for you in episode 68 of The Tech John. From Columbus, Ohio, I'm your host, Rob Dunwood. And out of Atlanta, this is Terrence Gaines, a.k.a. Brother Tech, a.k.a. Refs. If you're watching, please don't flag me or call any crazy calls because I can't take it. <laughs> I don't know if you watched any sports this weekend. It didn't matter if it was football or basketball. It was just sports. <laughs> it was just bad calls mm-hmm. everywhere. Refs was tripping. So uh, somebody said, can't wait for the AI refs to take over. <laughs> You know what? Talking about the whole chat GT, GPT. They may have to uh, implement that for the for the refs. So it's, at least it'll be fair across the board versus what the refs can see and what they can't see. So for folks who can't see our faces right now, let's just mention the obvious. It's just Terrence and Rob this week. There's no Stephanie. She's out. She's out this week. So the fellas is going to hold down the tech job for episode 68. But yeah, the the LeBron foul. They are really saying there's got to be a way that you can use camera and software and <laughs> to, 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 to figure out whether or not you, you reverse that call or something like that. You know, well, could some rules change? Implement the, they need to implement NFL last minute, last two minutes, however they want to do it. You know, all questionable calls are automatically reviewed. Uh, and then to make matters worse with that call with, with, uh, LeBron, the play before that, um, they called a super late call to put Boston up. I think Jalen Brown had a, uh, shot around the rim or something like that. And it looked weird. And the, the refs waited for like three to five seconds and then blew the whistle that he got fouled yeah. and that let him go to the line to go up. And then I think they tied it and then LeBron went up for the layup. Clearly, I mean, anybody with two eyes could see. He got fouled and there's a ref. What bothers me is in most of these calls, most, most questionable calls that happen that I've seen, there is a ref standing right there. It ain't like the rest on the other side or 
There's nothing obstructing the, the ref's view. Clearly, if you watch that rep, uh, uh, LeBron layup in slow motion, there is a ref standing right there. And I mean, he didn't, did not want to blow the whistle. The ref is closer to LeBron than half the players on the court when that foul happened. Then in the NFL, there was a, a punt or a kickoff that hit one of the, the camera wires. Right. And clearly you could tell that the ball changed direction and changed speed and changed trajectory. But just because the refs didn't see it, they couldn't call it. And then um, what was the other one? Uh, there was a couple calls in the NFL to where it's like, come on, come on, refs. So there was the, uh, you know, the, a lot of Cincy fans are going to be upset. Cincinnati fans are going to be upset about the call. Um, oh yeah. Where the ref, um, they didn't run the clock. They didn't run the, the clock. Ref was supposed to run out and tell the, the, the play is canceled because they haven't ran the clock, but he kind of sheepishly kind of strolled out there. And then yeah. the play ran, he's like, oh, the play ran. not get hit. Yeah. He, he, backed he, he, he backed up so he wouldn't <laughs> get hit, but here's he the run thing. out there and take that L. Now, <laughs> if, if that would have caused. Cincinnati to lose the game. That would have been huge. Just like, you know, what, what's going on? Because even it's like, come on, it's like they, they literally, the punt team had run out on the field. That's, that's how late that call mm-hmm. came in. Fortunately for Cincinnati in that moment, that one didn't cost them the game because literally if, if, you know, if they would have punted, they were going to punt from the 40. I think they ended up punting from 39. So it's like, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was one of those things where it really didn't cost Cincinnati anything. And then, you know, the, well, the last play, it's like, that's just football player. You have to know you cannot hit anybody that far out of bounds, let alone a quarterback. You just can't do it. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the refs got that call. But even the call where they, you know, um, the refs, you know, uh, redid the down. Uh, the Chiefs did not com- convert. And they got like on that on that set of downs, they got like two extra tries to convert. Now, they didn't convert. But at the same time, it's like, yo, like you mentioned, if 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 Kansas City didn't convert and then the refs ran out and said, oh, the play was dead. And then the Chiefs turn around and convert and then they run more clock to end the game. Oh, yeah, that would have been bad. Right. Just so just so happened that Kansas City didn't end up converting after replaying the down. Or let's say this happened. Let's say they actually made a first down on that play. Right. And then oh, yeah, you yeah, try yeah, to, yeah. because the same thing happened. The ref clearly, they, 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 you know, I'm going to assume that they would have been consistent in this, that they still would have mm-hmm. said that it wasn't a play because they can go back and show the video of the ref running onto the field. But if they would have converted, mm-hmm. then, you know, it would have been Call anarchy and mayhem. And they don't convert. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's been a, it, it was a weekend in sports, but let's go ahead. At, let's at the very least, I was going to say at the very least, and then we can transition at the very least refs and the organization or the group or whomever, they need to be more transparent because then the more and more they try to just say it calls the call and then go hide. <laughs> they need to be a little bit more. They need to be, I know they've got, last two minute report. So, and every once in a while refs come out and say, we got this one wrong, but they need to be way more transparency or it's only going to get worse. Yeah. The, <laughs> you know, the basketball one that, that is just egregious. It, it is. Mm. If, if you are a ref at the NBA level, 
and you can't make that call, and I'm talking specifically about the ref that is under the basket, that is looking right at the play, do you think that the man that is 117 points away from scoring the most points in the in the industry, the history of the NBA, that he literally just bricks a left-handed layup when he is in fact left-handed. I know LeBron shoots most of the time right-handed, but he's ambidextrous. He does everything in life left-handed except shoot free throws and jump shots. Everything else he does left-handed. And when you go and you look at it and just how that bounced off the rim, it's like something, you know, the, the crew had to, they had to call something there. That that was just crazy because literally that one game could be the the difference between them making the playoffs, not making the playoffs. It's, it's not like the Lakers are a great team. Fighting. Yeah. So well, in the West, they're all battling for position, like the fourth through the 10th positions. Everybody's like the same, relatively the same uh, record. So everybody's right now jockeying for position by the halftime, you know, well, what do they call it? Not halftime. What do you call it? All-star. In the middle of the season. All-star, All-star break. break, which is, you know, which is the midpoint of the season. You know, after that, you know, uh, standings become important. So they're all trying to jockey to get a better uh, spot before halftime. I mean, half, I keep saying that. All-star break. So it's, while it's just a game, you know, and a lot of people, of course, hate LeBron, which, uh, side note tangent. I don't understand why there's so many people that hate LeBron James. Now you can disagree with the moves he made on the court when it comes to Miami and going back to Cleveland and then going to LA and then dragging all them people with him or through the mud as far as LA. But I mean, there's just a lot of people that just hate. And LeBron I, I don't and get James. it. So you can say that you don't think that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player ever. I tend to think that that person is Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. That That is that is my goat when it comes to basketball. But you know what? It ain't bad to be the second richest person in the world, the second best basketball player in the world, you know, the second best company in the world. Being number two ain't that bad. Um, You know, when it, when it comes to things that are this objective, but it's like there are people out there who don't think he's even top 10 player. And it's like, what? Oh, <laughs> Me personally, I think LeBron is better than Michael Jordan simply because on and off the court. Of course, you can't do off the court, but Michael Jordan was a dickhead off the court. So LeBron is the coolest dude you can ever meet. I haven't met him personally, but mm-hmm. you know, that, that just goes into my qualifications. You know, you could be a dope, you know, basketball player, but a terrible human being. And I'm, that kind of takes you down a peg, but that's well, just me. And, well, here's what it is with me. <laughs> this is really why. If I were to go and look at the numbers, I'm probably going to go, okay, well, what does, uh, what does Jordan do better than LeBron? Well, he scored more points, better free throw shooter. And he's got, you know, he, he's six, six and oh in the finals. And it's like, but if you can go by that logic, okay, what about, you know, what about the, you know, the big O, uh, you know, or you go to or, or Russell. It's like those dudes was good too. I'm thinking, uh, you know, Bill Russell. It's like he got 11 championships. Does that, you know, just because of the, you know, the championships, you know, is he the best? But I grew up watching Jordan. So it's kind of like I have memories, childhood memories of, you know, he is really the first superstar basketball player that I can remember their entire career. Um, I know folks are saying it's like Stephanie don't come on for one week and these, these, these dudes turn this into a tech show. I mean, turn this into a sports show. It's not. Uh, but you know, we, we, we had to get it out of our system. We are going to talk some tech this week, but before we do, 
I want to let everyone know that you can support the Tech John by becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash the Tech John. We've got multiple tiers over there, any one of which gets you access to our live streaming after party where you can watch us record the actual podcast and hang out with us afterwards. So if you want to support the show, head over once again to patreon.com forward slash the Tech John. That is patreon.com forward slash the Tech J A W N. So Terrence, let's jump into some tech. The first story that I stuck in here was one that kind of interests me a little bit because, you know, I like folding devices, but Apple is rumored to be releasing a foldable iPad as soon as 2024. Um, and I put the, we, we've heard about folding stuff before, but this one is coming from Mean She Cool, who is actually pretty good and pretty on point with his stuff that he, uh, you know, that he tends to come out with, with his analysis. So I want to get your take, you know, you being the, you know, you know, being the, 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 the snob when it comes to everything Apple. What do you think about a folding iPad? Do you think one actually will come out as soon as next year? No. Uh, it's a slow news week in the Apple world. Um, maybe as it relates to recent events, I think a lot of businesses, tech companies, companies in general kind of staying silent on the, uh, the news, um, feed due for possibly obvious reasons. Maybe it just be. Maybe, I don't know. Um, especially all the stuff that came out in the news recently, but I think this is a reach for Ming Chi Kuo to stay in the news by analyzing, I guess is what you want to call it, that Apple is going to come out with a foldable tablet as early as 2024, which if you're doing the math is next year. There's no way that Apple is going to come out with a foldable iPad. He says that uh, he's got some connects in a Chinese component manufacturer. Um, Mark Gurman, which is another one of these Apple analysts, says something along the lines of Apple has been exploring a dual screen foldable and added that the bottom half of the display will serve as a virtual keyboard when the device is used as a MacBook style clamshell. Yeah, I don't believe it. I just flat out that these cats, you know, like you mentioned, Ming Chi Kuo is pretty reasonable when it comes to his product is um, what do you call them predictions. predictions. But at the same time, he's not held accountable or held liable if any of these predictions are wrong. And I'm pretty sure we could point to instances to where these cats are wrong. Nobody really cares. But when they're right. Oh, you know, Apple analyst Ming-Chi Kuo has been, you know, uh, on on point when it comes to Apple you know, predictions. That's because, you know, we squeaky wheel gets the oil right. But all that around the world to say, I don't have any empirical <laughs> reasons or uh, 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 insight as to why I don't think Apple is going to come up with a foldable device. I just don't think they're going to do it. They got other things they're worried about. You know, right now they're debating, well, not debating. They are heavily trying to decide on whether or not they're going to do a AV, AR, VR headset. They are still working with, you know, Apple car technology or is Apple going to announce a smart car, electric car or not? You know, Apple's still trying to figure out if they're going to create their own chips. They've got a, um, they're doing their own computer chips. They are. Uh, starting to do their own cell cell radios in the iPhones. Now they're trying to decide if they're going to do Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. I think 
Now, I know Wi-Fi, are they going to do their own chip? But I think there's another chip. So all that to say, Apple's got his hands tied on some of those other things. And I don't think a dual screen iPad is nowhere near on Apple's radar. But that's just me. So so here's the question. Um, would you be interested in a folding, a foldable iPad? I know if it were me, I would be much more interested in a foldable iPhone. But this the, the news is, you know, foldable iPad 2024. Is that something that you would even want if it was an option for you to get? Not if it's going to be the same price as me buying a MacBook. <laughs> now, if a foldable iPad came out and it was, you know, $399, $499, but a foldable iPad sounds like a $1,000 plus machine. And if it's a $1,000 plus machine, I might as well go spend $1,300 and get a MacBook. But that's just me. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you talked about ramifications for these analysts missing. Well, I think this is going to be a miss because Quo also expects or, or also predicted that a folding iPhone would come out as early as this year. Now, that was a two year ago prediction. I would I, I think we could be I, you never know what's going to happen. I would just say this. If Apple somehow has kept it quiet that they actually have an i you know, an iPhone coming out this year that folds in half or folds, you know, um, along the, you know, along the long side, I guess I still folding in half. Mm-hmm. That's got, that's got to be the best kept secret in tech. I, I, I cannot see that happening, but that's where my interest would be. I think I mentioned this on this show last year, back in the fall, I bought my wife the, the Galaxy Flip 4, the newest flip. That's the one that flips from top to bottom. And she and most of her friends. They, you know, most of her friends have iPad or excuse me, iPhones, but they're not like, they're not like just, oh, I'm, I'm really into the iPhone. They just, that's what everybody else has. That's what they have. It's, you know, iPhone is the most popular phone in, you know, in America, but the number of people is like, oh man, I wish Apple made one of those that I hear people say, because what they like is that it's cute in that you can fold it up and it's protected inside of your, uh, you know, inside of your purse or wherever you put it, your, ski, your, your your keys aren't scratching it up when it's in, you know, in your bag or whatnot. And it's just, it's just a really cute phone that they like, uh, you know, like the size of it. They can actually fit it in their back pocket. What You know, you, you know, if, I'm I sure see. you've seen the so women how- that walk around with the phone. They've got them itty bitty pockets and three fourths of the phone is hanging out the back the of the pocket. Purse. So yeah. <laughs> how much did that phone cost you got for your wife? Um, I, th- I think it started at eight ninety nine, and the in the and, and she got the thousand because I just upped the memory on it. So she, I think, it was like a thousand. How, how much you think a comparable Apple foldable phone was going to cost? I would imagine it's going to be in the same price range as whatever the uh, the the Pro. What what is the highest end Apple or you know I, right iPhone? Right now, I have the uh, I have the Apple fourteen iPhone fourteen Pro Max. I think I paid $1,100, I think. I would, I would imagine that this would be in the same price range as that. So when I look it's at gonna, the phone. It's got it's going to be above that because they're not going to not to do the pro line. They're going to do the pro line and then they're going to do a foldable phone on top of that. In addition to not on top, in addition to this. So you think they would actually make it be more expensive? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Why wouldn't they? Ooh, yeah, you got a point. 
give me a reason as to why Apple could not put a foldable phone in just because it's new, just because it's foldable, just because everybody is saying, why won't Apple get into the foldable phone game? If I was running Apple, I'd be like, oh, y'all want a foldable phone? Bet. It's going to be $1,400 <laughs> with 64 gigs of RAM. If you want to bump it up to 128, you're looking at about $1,500. But see, here's and the then thing. You decide whether or not them people want a cute foldable phone. But see, here's the thing with Apple. They'd have no problem selling it. None whatsoever. It, it, it would sell just fine. I'm just um, curious as to how many people would think about it versus they say, oh, I wish Apple did that. I wish Apple made a cute foldable phone and then we see it come out and then they see that price tag. Are they going to be as quick to buy it or are they going to be like, mm, well, uh, well, and see, well, here's the other thing that I think about how Apple does things. I've heard you say this on this show and many other shows many, many times. Apple is not necessarily in the game of coming out with new stuff. They will take your stuff that you came out with four or five years ago and actually do it right. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've heard you make that point that they will actually, okay, Samson, we see what you're doing. Here's how you should have done it. Um, w- w- watch it go here. So I think that Apple, they could get away with making, like I said, with not putting all the components that you're going to have in that pro max, let it just be a folding iPhone that doesn't cost more than a pro. Like let's, you know, so you've got, you know, so you've got the iPhone and you've got the iPhone pro. This would cost what an iPhone pro costs, but it actually would have the parts of just the iPhone. Um, so you could actually charge more for it for that fold, but you're not actually really cannibalizing the folks who want to get the pro or want to get the pro max. I think if they did something like that, the thing would sell like hotcakes because there's just people who just, you know, they, they like m- my wife, uses her phone to make text messages, to call folks, to play a game here and there, to listen to Spotify here and there. But she's not like into that phone. Like if I were, if I were to forget my phone, like number one, I, there's never been a time when I forgot my phone at the, at the crib and got more than like three or four miles away from the house before I realized it. But let's just say like if my wife, let's say, you know, we, we have some outlets that are probably an hour away from us. She could forget her phone get halfway to the outlet and still continue to trip. I physically couldn't, I, I would stop, turn around, go back, get my phone and, and, and backtrack and then, and, and go, you know, turn around. And there's a lot of people who are like us or like, I, will, I ain't gonna put that on you. I'll put that on me. There's a lot of people who are like me who would do that, but she's just not, it's like, well, when I get back home, whoever call, I'll call them back. And that's just kind of how she rolls with her phone. So I think that a lot of iPhone users are probably like that. They just use iPhone because it's a great device is what they've been using for years. And if they could get one that was cute that did something different, that would actually, you know, make them go and and buy something new and maybe pay a little bit more than what they normally do. Just just a thought. I don't know. All that being said, I can't see that thing coming out this year, which is what. Um, Especially not an iPad, yeah. if that's the subject, right? Yeah. Um, a phone, maybe, because you can get more screen real estate, potentially, if you had a device that could unfold twice its size or, you know, whatever the case may be with the, with an iPad, it's already large. Um, I, yeah, I, I would, that would cannibalize, which ain't a first for Apple, their, um, accessories market, which again, like I mentioned, <laughs> they ain't never stopped Apple before, <laughs> but you know, you think of all the, you know, logic techs, you think of all the, you know, all these other manufacturers that make a pretty penny selling keyboards for iPads and tablets and things of that nature. 
you know, if this was true and it came out with a, a, a iPad that could fold that the bottom half serves as a visual, um, what they call it? Not a visual, a virtual, virtual keyboard, virtual keyboard. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's enough of a sale uh, yeah, be- for an iPad because like, I think you're right. That would be expensive. <laughs> you, you, you know, so if you start getting much more expensive than when like existing iPad pros cost, um, here's the thought that I had. I was thinking, yeah, you know what? I could use this and here's, here's how it would really be good. If I could actually use it as a secondary monitor for my Mac, um, you know, if I chose to do so, but I'm thinking, but you could just buy a secondary monitor for your Mac, probably, you know, for significantly less than what actually buying an iPad to serve, you know, to serve that function. So it'll be interesting to see if, if this happens. Like, I think I'm with you. I don't see it, but there's a lot of things I don't see. You know, and, you know, I've been wrong with many things like this. No, nah, I just think this dude trying to stay in the news. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Terrence, this, uh, this next story we want to talk about it's not really an individual story. It's just kind of the state of being. And uh, the title I put on here is, is that the venture capital divide is getting worse for black founders. In 2021, black founders received the most venture funding that they've ever received. It was about 1.3% of all VC money came to black founders here in the U.S., that number actually slid back last year in 2022, back down to 1%. A big reason for it is that Q4 black VC or I should say black founders, they literally just got nothing. It, you know, it, it dwindled significantly in Q4, bringing the numbers for the whole year now. Um, when you think about the number of people who look like us, who consume things, uh, you know, who, you know, technology, just products, you know, you know, it, we're a sizable percentage. We actually spend more money on stuff than the actual representation of the number of people that there are. But when it comes to getting money to support the stuff that we come up with, it is significantly behind our actual numbers. Like I said, we're at one percent. We're well over one percent of the population. If all things being equal, we should be we should be seeing VC put money into black founded companies at the same rate that they put it into, you know, white founded companies or any company for that matter. And it, it is just 
not the case. So to, so to give you some numbers here is that uh, black founders in the U.S. picked up around 0.79% of VC funds raised in Q4 of 2022. Um, there was a fear that during the bear market that we're now in or moving into, investors would retreat to their old school networks. And the total amount of funding black founders received last year is practically half of that amount they raised in 2021. So the record being in 2021, 4.34 billion out of around 330 billion total. So I just wanted to kind of just throw this out there and just kind of have a conversation about it. What do you think some of the reasons are? Now, I know the number one reason that you think you don't have to say that one, but what do you think some of the biggest reasons that, you know, well, black I mean, founded companies just don't get VC funded? Well, um, just reading, um, thinking about the quote you just read about those numbers, uh, black VCs, black founders already receiving less than their white counterparts. Uh, if this is a bear market and uh, VCs are pinching their pennies and folding up their wallets and tucking them in their back pockets, that means VC spending in general is going to go down. So when white folks catch cold, black people catch the flu. So if VC spending is going down in general, that means even less of the money, even less money is going to black VCs. That could or could not be a racial thing. Uh, we already know the answer, but I mean, it makes sense to note that if VC spend is going down in general because of the current economic climate, then it makes you can, I mean, it don't take a rocket science to figure out that there's going to be black, less money to spend in general. So there's going to be less money going to black folks. Um, other than that, I mean, it's just the way it is. I mean, we, like you said, we are a consumer, uh, group. Um, until we start building things, you know, we're always going to, um, be in that situation and, uh, which is sucks because again, we are a capitalistic society. Uh, if we stop buying things, our economy stops. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, on, add that on the top of, you know, the black community in general tends to consume more than it creates. You know, this is what it adds up to. You know, they'll take our money kindly. No, we ain't going to not spend it. You know, but really don't have to equate what they give or what they contribute to black VCs to actually start to create stuff when they know we're going to spend the money anyway. So, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons that I believe that this is, a, is an issue is that when you think about where venture capitalist uh, firms, where they get their money from, they basically get it from limited partners. These are folks who are sophisticated investors that are actually putting money into VC because they want to make not just full five, 6%, you know, in, in the market, they want to make, if, if you know, if, if something hits, it could literally make them 30, 40, 50, 100%, 200%. They, they, they really want to hit. They're willing to put the risk in for the big, ridiculous gains that they can get back. Um, hide their money, uh, tax write off. <laughs> that could be part of it as well. Um, but one, and this isn't just when it comes to black founded companies. This just comes to how black folks in America are still viewed. Um, limited partners view investments with black founders as diversity investments. There's something different. It's, it's not just an investment. Oh, I want to, I'm going to, you know, this is a black founded company. I'm going to do that diversity investment because I want to make sure that I'm not being racist. I literally think that that's how these conversations go. We're going to do that thing, but they're not looking at these diversity 
investments as good investments. They're looking at them as something else. And so when you actually go and you look at, you, you know, black companies that do get funded, they don't perform worse than their white counterparts. The opposite is actually, you know, quite true. But the big issue for these black VCs and where the other, you know, where uh, where VCs actually kind of pull back is that, oh, well, they didn't grow as fast as we were expecting. Well, it's because you didn't invest in them at the same level that you invest in these other companies. So, um, you know, w- one of the things that I saw here, I pulled this uh, stat out, but it basically said that from 2016 through 2020, there were only five black founders that progressed to Series D or further type funding. So if you just think of it like A funding, B funding, C, you, you, basically there's only five black investors who were able to go to the well at least four or more times to get funded in their, uh, you know, in their endeavor. So when you really look at it, you know, what's really happening? These black companies aren't failing at a higher rate so that you shouldn't invest in them, but you're not investing in them in the same rate. So you have a black company that you invest in. It does very well, but they should get, you know, which should allow them to get more funding. They don't get that additional funding, so they can't grow as fast. So now you compare it to a company that you gave the funding to and say, well, um, we're not going to give you money because you're not growing as fast as the company we gave money to, which that's just a math problem. It's like, you know, Give them money and then you'll see if they're able to actually, you know, go do it. It's, it's not like they're we, we invested in this company and it failed. Therefore, we don't want to do it again. It's like, no, you know, you're not growing fast enough, which is why we're not giving you money. But the the money is the thing that will allow them to grow faster. So, Chicken or the egg. yeah, so it is a you know, it, it, it's. It, it, it's an issue. I mean, it's it, it really is. There's a there's a lot of black founders out here that have a lot of really, really good ideas. And they simply can't go to VC firms. They can't go to banks and, you know, in many in many cases and get funded. And it's, it has nothing to do with their financials or anything like that. It's just that oh, we just don't feel that this is the right investment for us. Well, and it, it could be internalized too. you know, um, what I mean by that is if we know. Black folks spend money in an order in ornament amount, if I can say that right. Um, if they know we're if if we spend the money regardless, and black founders and black VCs know that they're not getting the money at the same clip as their counterparts, then it would make sense, in theory, for black VCs to go directly to the consumer, bootstrap traditional loans, if they know we're going to spend the money and they know they got a product that we want, you know, then in theory, the logic will be, we'll skip the middleman and go straight to the consumer, which I personally know some people who have made success that way after being told, no, 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 we don't understand. We just don't get it. We don't think the type of uh, customer we are uh, banking on would understand what's going on. Yada, 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 all the excuses, all the excuses, all the excuses, right? So it would make sense for, you know, black VCs, black founders, black startups with a great idea that has been said no to too many times by VC to go directly to the consumer. And maybe the reason why that's not in practice as easy as it sounds is because maybe there's some maternalized, you know, um, thought process going there as far as, you know, where we spend our money. 
You know, do we, are we quick to spend our money, you know, supporting black businesses, you know, or is there some sort of the, I call it the uh, award show <laughs> theory. Mm-hmm. I know exactly you what know. you're talking about. Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, we know we make good movies. We know we make good content. We know we entertain it ourselves, but we still are waiting to get that Emmy nod, that Oscar nod, you know, in order to be validated for our own people to be like, they made it, but we know they made it because they play, they make the music, they make the entertainment that we know and love, but they don't make it until, oh man, you need a Netflix show. Why? When you absorb my content and you love it, why don't you feel I haven't made it until I get to Netflix or until I get an Emmy or until I get an Oscar or a Golden Globe or a People's Choice or whatever the case may be? Why can't you just enjoy my content, you know, and and uh, consume uh, and, you know, reward me for that by supporting the content? So all the way back to VCs and startup founders specifically, there may be some internalization going there to where it's not so easy to just go straight to the consumer because you need that big VC firm, Anderson Horowitz, all these other ones, whatever name, name them to say, you know, Oh, they made it that they, they big, big. Let me, let me pay attention to what's going on. You know, again, again, just to spread the, the, the blame around, you know, I don't want to say this is a whole, a big racism thing, but it's all internalized. It's all institutionalized. So, there's a bigger thing at play, and I don't think it's just an easy answer. Oh, I, I know. Um, I've read stories. I probably should have pulled some up so I could actually cite them um, for this conversation that you and I are having. But I know of black founders, you know, going through their exasperation of not being able to get bank loans, not being able to get VC, not having the friends and family network to go and get, you know, potentially millions of dollars. Okay, I've got to bring in a partner. And oftentimes, one of the things you're thinking about is that, well, if I bring in a white CFO, would that help me get more funding? And I know some of our listeners are going to say, oh, man, no, no one should ever have to do that. You're right. No one should ever have to do that. But these are real, these are real, you know, decisions. These are real conversations that people are having because it's like, in order for this to happen, I have to get funding. If I can't get it on my own, do I need an ally that's going to help me get it? So do we go, you know, you, I mean, you may actually need, you know, I, I wouldn't say just go get a CFO because you're just trying to get a white face to come in and, hey, I'm white. I can, you know, can, can you give me? I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I have I, I know personally of companies that they have thought about. Well, yeah, I, you know, we, we need a, we, we need a really good CFO to help us. Uh, you know, go through this. Let's make sure we get the one who can, you know, who can have the conversations. Those are real thoughts that black founders have and they're gut wrenching because you can almost feel like you're selling out yourself in order to get the bag when, um, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like I said, I, I'm not saying that it's something that I've done, but I know that there are founders who go through these mental exercises on what do I do um, or do I just stay niche? And like, you know, we've talked about this on the, you know, on the show before a black owned business does not mean that it only does business with black people. Um, I have, I've actually had white people tell me, well, I didn't know that, you know, that I could really shop there. It's like, 
that you know, they'll be like saying that, you know, black folks can't shop at Walmart. I mean, I mean, if you really think it sounds ridiculous when when you actually, you know, complete well, the mental exercise. But well, there are white folks who actually think that it's a black owned business. Uh, I didn't really know I should shop at the black owned business. Well, I mean, there is a um, unwillingness or a lack to. The common thought is I can't. I can't visualize my money being um, valued the same, right? Uh, as, as a white person supporting a black owned business because, okay, they're not catering to me. I don't see my face on the picture. I don't see my, you know, they're not talking my language. They're not promoting in my neighborhoods, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, that's how we think. <laughs> that's how we feel when, you know, let's take it back to the movies. You know, we're always asking for representation in movies and films. You know, we've had to do the mental gymnastics to picture ourselves in these otherwise white centric movies is white centric centric entertainment to say, Oh, it's more about the story, you know, put myself in, you know, we have to do that. So we are more willing to do that when our counterparts, they don't have to, that's the whole privilege thing. They're privileged enough to where there are movies, there are, you know, entertainment that centers them. So they don't have to do that mental gymnastics say, okay, well, how do I fit in this story? Mm-hmm. They just are in the story. So when it, to break that down in black businesses, you know, they'll say, Oh, I didn't think they catered to me or I didn't think they, you know, whatever. When it's just a t-shirt, <laughs> it's just a t-shirt, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, uh, it, it really is. It, it is, it is something that, I mean, like I said, I've, I've had, you know, white friends who have actually said, you know, to me, you know, in, you know, hey, I just, they felt like comfortable enough with me that they could have that conversation. And, you know, and I had it with them and it's like, yeah, just, just because it's a black owned company doesn't mean that you cannot patronize it. It's like, it's like, well, I don't, I want to feel like, um, I, I don't want anybody to feel like I'm going to get that t-shirt and, um, I'm just doing that because I feel sorry because it's a black owned business. Like I really thought the t-shirt was dope. I just didn't know that I could buy it. That, that is a conversation that I know that white folks have, they, they've had it with me. So I know that they've, you know, that there's probably more than just one person that's kind of had that thought. So, so yes. And, and I'll just leave it with this. When it comes to the venture capital industry itself, we need more representation there. It is. It is quite possible to go through whole companies and you see no black and brown folks. You you barely see any women, you know, any, any white women, let alone black and brown women, black and brown men. You know, you, you just don't see that at a lot of VC firms. And I think that if things start to change at that level, things will start to change on the actual grants that these companies are, you know, are, are making to, you know, co- you know, you know, to companies that don't necessarily look like their, you know, look like their clientele. You know, yeah, you're right. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, maybe black VCs, black startups, black businesses maybe need to not feel like they have to go to your traditional name, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, popular. I'll call them popular. I can't mm-hmm. think of a better name. Popular, you know, places to get the money, you know, maybe start smaller. You know, there are some black venture capitalist uh, firms popping up, you know, are black folks beating down their doors? I don't know. We'd have to bring one on the show. You know, if you're watching, you got any black VC firms, black, uh, you know, uh, come on the show, go on tech John. We'll you know, definitely shout you out, but you know, we maybe, you know, need to think outside the box, you know, mm-hmm. and are we willing to do that? You know, we definitely got to take some of the onus on ourselves. Oh, and I would just say, I would do this. We definitely are. 
because we really ain't got no choice. The the numbers are not <laughs> these numbers are not being made up. One percent of the money that went out went to black funded businesses or black founded businesses, I should say. Um, trust me when I tell you that black founded businesses are more than one percent of businesses. So we'll just kind of leave it with that and then get into this next story. So th- this one is Terrence a a tech story. <laughs> and it was like, wow, it's like, you know, they, they actually came out and said the they said the quiet part out loud. So to the surprise of no one, TikTok picks winners and losers when it comes to what goes viral on the platform. They confirmed that its employees can decide what goes viral with something that they refer to as the heat button. So to make a long story short, what they can do is they can actually outside of the algorithm that pushes certain content up, pushes other content down. They can say, I want this artist. I want this influencer. I want this person. I want this company. I want them to get some shine. So they literally can hit a hot button that will, regardless of what the algorithm says, push that content to the front of, of, you know, of people's viewing experience inside of TikTok. What say you? Well, they do say that um, only zero point point zero zero two percent of videos in your feeds are heated. Um, they claim to do it to help diversify the content experience and not necessarily diversify as far as black and white different cultures. Just flat out. If you just watch video uh, car videos all day, you know, these the the reasons why they may heat heat a um popular video is to diversify your content experience. So you're not just watching cars. They may, you know, show you, you know, something related to cars or whatever the case may be. So, um, and then they say the heated videos reportedly make up around one to 2% of total daily video views. Right. So you say all you, you read all that and say, well, you know, technically speaking, even though they can do it, they really don't. But the fact that they've been pushing the fact that people believe the fact that these content creators have been bending over backwards to understand the algorithm to figure out the best ways to get their content seen just to find out that it don't matter what you do. There is a method to where TikTok themselves can determine whether or not your content is played it's just a kick in the face <laughs> to any content creator who has been over backwards trying to figure the game out when the game is rigged to start with the game is rigged let's see so why even try and, and see here's the thing <laughs> the way they say well it's a very small percentage what, what was it point zero two percent zero two percent of yeah. videos are heated okay but that point zero zero two percent that actually gets heated can account for one to two percent of videos watched so mm-hmm. here's what I, here's what people need to need to know. I'm going to lend my extensive math background from college to folks and just and just make this plain. If any video is getting one to two percent of views on TikTok, it's trending as one of the top videos on Tintrock that day. Period. Period. Mm-hmm. So you you have to you have to you have to understand what they're saying with those numbers. They have the ability to copy lane your video <laughs> they have the the ability to what is it the Amelo sisters your video because they choose to do so i'll take your word for it um 
So th- th- that is significant. And when, when I started to think about this, it was like, well, you know what? Even in this article, they said, well, take that's not alone because they're going back to a few years back when Facebook, and this is a little bit different. Facebook inflated video metrics for over a year, but Facebook ended up settling $40 million with advertisers over miscalculated, you know, um, video metrics. So when you say, well, wh- why are they doing this? Well, because they can make more money by doing these things. If, if, if they decide that, well, this influencer works good for us and we're able to sell ads off of that, let's, let's promote them because that makes us more money. If this, if, if this artist uh, is, is, is hot right now, we want to get their video to the top because that ultimately is going to make TikTok more money. Then let's go ahead and do that. It's to me, it's all about the dollar on the, on the other side of this. But to go further into it, um, I just happened to, as I was researching this story over the weekend, see a tweet from Roland Martin. Um, Roland Martin, for those who don't know, he runs Black Star Network and, you know, he, he is regularly on television, but he has his own digital television network where it actually does pretty good numbers. You know, he's adding shows to it and stuff like that. I think Stephanie last week said that, you know, she's worked, she, she's actually done some stuff with, you know, with his network before and we'll do some stuff with it in the future. But one of the things that he did was, you know, we're talking about somebody who has hundreds of thousands, pushing a million followers on Twitter, went on MSNBC and only in, a, in like a five hour period, only received four tweets that had anything to do with his MSNBC appearance. That just doesn't have that. That's just not regular for someone with the following of a of, of a Roland Martin. And he's not the only one complaining about this. There's a, there's lots of folks that are complaining about these things that are happening on Twitter. And it always kind of goes back to you got to, you know, you know, when you're in these other people's sandbox and you're playing in it, they control it. They, they, they ultimately have the rules work in their favor. So I'll just, uh, you know, go to this one, you know, this one video that I saw Isaac Hayes. We've talked about him before Isaac, Isaac Hayes, the third, he started what is fan base. So Isaac Hayes, he has a vested interest in making this this argument, but he's not necessarily wrong in his argument. He's basically saying that when you're on these platforms that are essentially free and they make their money from advertising, what you do on the platform is only at the pleasure of them making money. So if putting Roland Martin tweets at the top of somebody's feed doesn't if they if Twitter doesn't think that's going to make them money then those tweets are not going to be there. You don't control who sees your stuff on these platforms where fan base is a little bit different is that they don't make their money off advertising. They make their money off transactions that you do with your community and they just take a piece of it. They're basically a middleman. So if you got 50,000 followers and you put a piece of content out, you have 50,000 followers who potentially have the opportunity to see your content if they log into the app and look at it. Whereas with Twitter, you put out a, you have 50,000 followers on the place of Roland Martin. You're pushing a million followers and you put a tweet out. Twitter determines how many people they want that tweet to go out to. It is something far less than the eight, 900,000 people he has following him on that platform. Yep. Well, absolutely. You know, and he, he mentions Elon Musk. I don't know um, if he feels like uh, he, he says Elon, this is Roland Martin in his tweet. Elon Musk is absolutely doing this. There's a stark difference since he took over. I don't know if he's insinuating that, uh, Elon Musk has a specific or um, a specific beef 
with Roland Martin? Does he have a beef with the type of content he's putting up? Like you mentioned, did he, does he or whomever just believe that this is not content that people are going to find interesting? I'm curious as to what Roland Martin believes Elon is doing specifically as it relates to him. But basically he's saying clearly something has changed with him specifically since Elon took over. So I'm curious to know what that is. I will just say this. If anybody's ever listened to Roland Martin, they will know that you don't have to guess what Roland Martin is thinking. He will tell you exactly what is on his mind. So I'm not, I, I don't dare get into thinking what he's thinking. He, let, let me tell you what I think is happening. And this is not just Twitter. This is a Twitter, TikTok, Meta with Facebook and Instagram, Pinterest, based, you know, you know, who, who, who am I leaving off? Uh, uh, pretty much any, any social media platform that makes money off advertising, this is what it is about for them. We're going to show our user base content that makes us money. I think it simply comes down to that. Is it we're going to silence these particular voices? Maybe it could get to that point, but I don't think that that point trumps. Do we make money with this? Or do we not make money with it? Do we get money from these advertisers that we want to get money from, you know, you know, you know, from a, from a set of advertisers that we want to get money from? Or do we not? I think, you know, for the most part, that's what it ultimately comes down to. So we have been saying this since we have started this show for the year and a half that we've been doing it. You have to control your distribution at some point. It's like if, if you have all your eggs in the basket of TikTok and we didn't even talk about this. It is very possible that TikTok may go away as far as the United States is concerned. The government really does not like it. They are banning it left and right in, in state houses and local and state and local governments. Uh, federal ban is coming. You know, could you see a complete ban to where they say we can't, we're not going to even allow this to be in, you know, um, to run, you know, inside of the United States? We, you know, we'll have to see if they go that far with it, but TikTok may be something that goes away. So what happens if you have based your career on TikTok? TikTok now goes away. Um, if you didn't do anything to maybe build a following on YouTube, to maybe build a following on Facebook, to maybe build a following in Mastodon before that happens, you're not going to be able to just transfer all the people who are rocking with you on one platform over to another platform. To think that's actually going to happen is a pipe dream. You, it, it, it will not. It, it probably won't even be 50% unless you are just mega popular. So. These are things that I believe that content creators have to really think about when it comes to where are you hitching your horse, so to speak. And I I really believe, you know, that you should be doing things that allow you to have an audience independent of whatever social media that is run by an algorithm to maximize ad revenue so that when they make a change that adversely affects you, you still have a way to get a hold of your people. We talked about it last week. There's companies that were running on top of Twitter, um, and using an API and Elon decided, Nope, we ain't doing that no more. And these companies literally shut down inside of a week because they just, it was unsustainable for them to keep running. You have to make sure that you're doing something else. So I don't, I don't want to make this a commercial for fan base because, you know, you know, like I said, I, I think what Isaac Hayes is doing over there is kind of cool, but he doesn't support us. Uh, you know, this is not, this is not an ad. I'm not recommending it, but the model is kind of cool. You got 50,000 followers on fan base. You put a tweet out or, or you, I don't even know what they call it, but you put a piece of content out on fan base. You potentially are going to have 50,000 people that have the opportunity to see it because they don't use an algorithm to determine what you see. 
You determine what you want to see by who you follow. That is a much more sustainable model than being at the win of an algorithm that is trying to maximize not your revenue, but maximize the revenue for the company. Just something people need to think about. But even with fan base, you know, they are in their infancy. Things can change. Um, They are a social media network, just like Twitter, just like Instagram, Facebook and the like. So ultimately you are contributing content. So in addition to like uh, Rob mentioned, you know, making sure you are multiple places so you're not affected if one goes away. You know, you got to figure out your game plan as far as monetization, as far as income. And um, money that these social media platforms are kicking back to you because they've made money by selling ads against your content. You also need to be figuring out, all right, how do I make money other ways? You know, whether it be selling T-shirts, whether it be providing. And this is why a lot of people are starting to create courses. Uh, they're starting to create. Um, I think we talked about it before. They're trying to create uh, communities, private yeah. communities, you know, where they charge people for it. You know, they are trying to do other ways because you got to, because again, things, the landscape is ch- changing so, so quickly that, you know, you got to diversify. Like Saray said, you got to uh, diversify, you know, so, you know, hopefully, you know, people are, these uh, content creators are starting to wake up because I mean, content ain't going away. There's always going to be content creators. There's always going to be people that um, look forward to as consumers look forward to social media on a break to get a quick laugh. They may like it. They may follow the content. They may comment, but you know, you trying so hard as a creator to convert those people, you ain't going to get all of them, you know, and furthermore, you're going to be fighting the social media, the the platform to make sure your uh, content is being seen by as many people as possible. So in addition to fighting that game, you know, have some other plans, you know? Yeah. And I just, you know, just to get let's let's talk about ourselves. You know, here at the Technion, we we put out you know this content every week. We have literally thousands of people hear our content every single week. Not every single one of them is a member of our Patreon. <laughs> you know, it it is. You know, it's you know we we actually do quite well with it. It is a sizable percentage. It's probably larger than the norm. Thank you to all our patrons out there for supporting us. But, you know, even we think about these kind of things. It's like you can go to our website and you could buy T-shirts you know, from us. You go to our website, you could buy mugs from us. You can go to Patreon and become a member of our community. You know, something that we set up. We're, we're not beholden to a social media platform to where we're trying to get a piece of their ad sales or we're you know, we don't get we don't get any of that. We're just trying to be popular there and hope that they don't you know, change your algorithm too much to where, where we're really popular today and we're not popular tomorrow. And it makes our, you know, makes our old, you know, overall revenue go down. I have been saying this for the longest time. And I know a lot of folks who are listening to me talk right now, they will say, I can't stand email list. I understand that there's a lot of folks who never are going to sign up to another email list who are never going to look at ads that come up in those things. But the thing that I like about email is that I control who sees it. If I send you an email, it is up to you on whether or not you actually look at it. But if you have given me permission to show up in your mailbox, unless you've created a rule that automatically deletes me or something like that, you know, out of your mailbox. If you once you give me that permission to show up, I can send you email at my leisure. 
And that is just fundamentally different than social media. Social media is that you can create content and hope four, seven, nine, twelve, seventeen percent of your audience sees it. Um, but that's an algorithm that you don't control. You you literally are not controlling your distribution there. When when you have someone's email address, when you have somebody's cell phone number, when you have you know someone in a community that you can direct message to, when you can actually say, I want to talk to this person, therefore I can make it happen, that is something different than social media. So like I'm, I'm not going to turn this into the but into the can't. social media hour, but it's something that you need to think about when you're creating content. You need to control your distribution. True. But the problem or the fault that I see a lot of people do, you get, people bless you with their email address or and or their phone number. You got to step up your game. You can't just be flooding the email with crap. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of a lot of content creators feel like oh, I need to be emailing my people every single day. No, don't they need to get to see this tweet. Go click on the link to go see the tweet that I tweeted or check out this video that I just posted on Instagram. No, you people have been blessed. You people have blessed you with their uh, contact information. You got to make it worth their while. And I think a lot of reason why a lot of people hate email lists and email newsletters and subscribing to them and getting them because it ain't nothing of value. It's just you flood my inbox with crap. No, um, no, you, you, you even more so than with social media, you have to put out quality content in an email list because one of the things that algorithms are really good at, let, let, let me give social media some props. If you're writing trash content, they're not showing it to anybody. Why? Because they don't make money off of trash content. So your audience doesn't see the crap that you often put out on social media on uh you know as you say and when, when you when you have somebody in a newsletter and you send out a crappy newsletter you may only get that one opportunity of like why am i even signed up to this unsubscribe and you never will get that person back so you you're absolutely right on that terrence you have to make sure that you are putting out quality content and i have learned this from many a copywriter who has hit me over the head with this less is more i cringe when i see some of these new letters that are 13 14 paragraphs long nobody's reading that <laughs> no no one is and, and unless you are putting out like like fiction or something like that like you, you literally are writing stories every week or every month or however you put that out and it's literally a short story nobody wants to see 15 you know 15 paragraph you know email people don't want to see 15 sentences in an email say what you need to say quickly effectively concisely and accurately and then and, and then shut up and and, and and put that out and see how see how it works so, like I said, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I am a fan of email because I've just seen it work. It's, it's worked for me in my career better than any other, you know, modality out there. And I've tried pretty much all of them. TikTok, I still haven't got to, don't think I ever will, but I've tried pretty much everything else. So, Terrence, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say on that, but if not, I think it's about that time. I'm looking at the clock. About time to wrap this show up. If I look at the Patreon, we did not have any new patrons sign up this week. So there's no shout outs to, to get. But a few patrons have actually asked this week about, hey, you're going to put the show back in the feed. We did a test with that back at the end of last year. So, yes, I want to announce now that for, for people who want to listen to the 
the after party, which Terrence and I are going to go into right after we get done recording the show, you will see a new feed that you can subscribe to and get access to our after party every week. Now, that's not going to be the YouTube video. Those are for our patrons that actually can watch that live, but you can get our access to the recording of our after party. You can get that audio. Uh, I think that we'll probably push that on Thursdays or Friday mornings or something like that and figure out the day. But this week, we'll start with an actual feed dedicated to just the after party. So once again, no patrons. There will be a new feed for the after party. And with that, parents, why don't you tell folks how they can get to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can find me on the Internet at Brother Tech, that's B-R-O-T-H-A-T-E-C-H. And I am at Rob Dunwood on all the things. We are also at the Tech John on all the things. I literally just created a the Tech John fan base. <laughs> so not following anybody yet. Nobody's following it yet, but it's out there. So if you're on fan base, come check us out over there as well. And until we meet again in a week's time. Peace. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.